Welcome to the Net Effects Podcast, where Les Ottolenghi and Mark Bavasoto break down how the Fortune 500, the hottest startups, and the best VCs succeed through digital, social, and personal transformation. And now, here are your show hosts, Mark Bavasoto and Les Ottolenghi. It's time to roll out the virtual red carpet for the e-commerce wizard and CEO of Channel Advisor, Mr. David Spitz. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. (laughs) So we hear you love to cook, right? This is what I'm hearing around town is you love to cook. So you must tell our audience, what is your favorite item you love to cook and why? Uh, that's a tough one. I'm half French. Uh, and my dad was a chef when he was younger and so must have transmitted some of that to me. Probably jambalaya uh, is my favorite thing to cook because it's hard to screw up. And, you know, it's one of those things that it's good when you make it. But then like a day or two later after it sat, you know, in the fridge and kind of had a chance to just kind of soak itself, it's it's even better. So that's that's probably what my kids like the most when I make too. So now as they get older, I have a 13 year old who really likes spicy food. So it's a little bit of a split in the family. As to, as to how much heat I put in it, but uh, that's probably my favorite. <laughs> good, good. From your aspect, you know, so your love of cooking really came from your father was a chef, and besides that, you know, we have this feature in all our podcasts called "Unmasking the Executive." What is a story that the world doesn't know about David that will help us get a better understanding of your background? Or David, alternatively, you can name your favorite Dr. Seuss story, and we'll take it from there. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, maybe maybe just a quick background. Uh, I grew up, you know, born and raised outside the D.C. area, although I did spend a few years in France early on, which I think kind of gave me a little bit of balance between, you know, sort of the American go-go capitalism thing, but also the joy of life uh, aspect you maybe get from the European side. But yeah, I grew up just outside D.C., went to school in San Diego, so long way from home. But, you know, it's one of those places you visit and you're like, okay, I could suffer the, this wow. weather and, and the beach for a few years. And then in North Carolina, working for IBM, uh, I was a computer science grad. So, you know, looking to go into software engineering. And uh, that's how I ended up in North Carolina. And it was funny, it was supposed to be a, a summer internship. It turned into a year, just kind of took on a life of its own, which ends up being a little bit of a recurring theme in my life. But that's how I ended up in North Carolina. And we've raised six kids here, believe it or not, in North wow. Carolina. So not every. <laughs> Not everybody knows that we've got a, a big family, and uh, but yeah, it's been we've been here now, I guess, more than twenty five years, which is hard to imagine, but we, we do love it here. Yeah, it's an amazing place. I grew up in that area, uh, so you're in Raleigh, North Carolina. Is that correct? Yep, that's right. Yeah, uh, and six kids. You definitely have used your time fully. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, that's amazing because kids. Channel Advisor is a, is a busy place. It's a public company, if I'm correct. And I'm not sure everybody knows your mission and the sort of the channel advisor story. So could you give us a little background on that? Yeah, sure. So at Channel Advisor, our mission is to connect and optimize the world's commerce. So in a way, think of us as digital plumbing. Our job is to help brands and retailers who are looking to sell products to consumers, help them connect to all of the different places 
that consumers shop online. So think of, you know, shopping on Amazon or doing Google searches or Walmart or eBay. Uh, we support hundreds of, of different selling channels and, and our job is to make it easier and more efficient for our customers to, to really keep up with uh, the rapidly changing digital landscape. I'm sure you can imagine that just like the, you know, the internet is always changing really rapidly. There's always some new thing. If you're a brand or you're a retailer and you're trying to keep up with this stuff, it can be kind of hard. So we offer a great technology platform and, and great services to help make that possible and easier. And, and we do that globally. So we work with customers all over the world and we've got teams of people all over the world as well to help make that possible. Um, the company, it's, it's interesting. We're just wrapping up our 20th year in business. So wow. Scott uh, Wingo was, uh, uh, and Aris Bonavishis were the, were the founders of Channel Advisor back in 2001. Wow. And so, you know, it's pretty cool to be part of a story, especially in technology where you don't see companies that necessarily, you know, have that kind of a lifespan. So yeah, so we're, we're coming into our third decade, which is hard to imagine. That's tremendous. And now, so th this is obviously, you're right. This is a big deal. 20 years going into 30 now. How many people in the company? So we're about 750 people around the world. Uh, obviously, our, our biggest footprint is in the U.S. We're headquartered in North Carolina and we have an office in Denver, but we've got a number of offices in Europe. Uh, so the UK, Germany, Ireland, uh, France and Spain. And then we also have a team in Melbourne, Australia. And just when you talk about this, because a, a number of our listeners are both in the enterprise side, so they're in, in big companies like yours, or they're in startups aspiring to become a big company like yours. So can you talk a little bit about the challenge of running the, a public company, particularly a tech public company? For one thing, going public is kind of a holy grail, I think, for a lot of entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, Scott and I work super closely on the, on that whole process. And to some extent, it's like the entrepreneurial equivalent of climbing Mount Everest. It's like, wow, you know, like that's, that's sort of like the, it sort of proves that, you know, you've done something of enduring value. And I think the most important thing about being public is to realize it's not a finish line. It's not like you get there and you're like, okay, everybody, you know, go home. <laughs> it's actually the, the start of a whole new chapter, a whole new journey. And what being public really means is you're really held to the highest standard, right? You're held to the highest standard of accuracy, of reporting, of, you know, how do you communicate with investors? Um, and, you know, down to, as you know, all of the really, really deep sort of accounting requirements. So it's, I think, the highest of high standards to be in the public realm. And so that means you have to be really thoughtful and really careful and you have to hire, you know, people with the right skills. Uh, you have to be knowledgeable about all the regulatory requirements. But I think it also forces you to be your best. And I think it's a place to be. Um, it's not always easy, right? When you're public, there's this giant billboard called the stock market, which is sort of flashing every minute of the day what, you know, what it thinks of you. Uh, and some days it thinks, you know, you're great. And some days it thinks you're not great. And um, you have to have a little bit of a thick skin, right? To maybe put aside some of that noise a little right. bit and focus on, on the long term. But I, I think it's been a great experience and I'm proud of what the team's done. We have the rise of these SPACs, right? These special purpose acquisition companies. I'm just curious, what's your thoughts around those? You know, it's, it's funny. I was listening to a little clip of Charlie Munger, who was on yesterday uh, yeah. pontificating on a number of these things. I think it's a little bit emblematic of a little bit of the froth that we're, that we're in right now. When we went public, we did it the old-fashioned way, right? You draft up your your prospectus, your S1, and you have to kind of go through that a number of times with the SEC until they're satisfied that you're really kind of disclosing everything the right way. You know, SPAC in some ways is a little bit of a shortcut uh, and it's a way for companies that maybe otherwise wouldn't have gone through that more rigorous going public process to just go public. 
So I guess I'm a little bit skeptical that it's sort of like a good long-term thing. I think there's something about the rigor of going public the old-fashioned way that sort of assures a level of quality. But, you know, markets can be a little bit frothy for a long time. So does that mean that it's bad in the near term? You know, I don't know. But I, I suspect, I mean, in the Wall Street Journal had a great graphic on this um, maybe a couple of weeks ago where they just showed the sort of exponential growth in the number of SPACs over the last year from sort of the normal, you know, trickle to just this real flood. And all of these companies, these SPACs typically have one or two years to identify and merge with a target. And so it does sort of leave the question as to, are these hundreds of SPACs really going to find something in the next 12 to 18 months that is an appropriate target uh, and have success? So, you know, I hope it's not the case because it's the retail investor who, you know, ultimately gets burned. So, so I hope it's not the case that the answer is no to that. But, you know, I can imagine a scenario in 12 to 24 months where, you know, folks that haven't found that dance partner start to get a little desperate and maybe, you know, find anything that sticks and then try to take that public. So we'll see. Yeah. When you see 345 SPACs in the pipeline, and you just mentioned this, it does sort of resemble this frothiness. Uh, I'm not saying there's a bubble, but there this frothiness. And there's also potentially this risk to um, sort of misprice the market. And, and ultimately, it also seems like companies that have been around for 20 years at the end of that will benefit because you're the more stable, reasonable, measured. As you said, you've gone through all the rigor of the, the public sort of being public measurements and regulatory side of things. Do you see there is this opportunity then uh, more in tech or more in other sort of new leading businesses, or is it a general market disposition where there are these new businesses that can come to fruition? The market obviously is cyclical, right? It always has been and it always will be. Um, and it's hard for me to say with any real certainty what, you know, what the market might bring in a year or two. The way I've always run channel advisors is maybe a little bit old fashioned, um, you know, I believe that a company eventually should be profitable and should have good unit economics and should uh, work to maximize growth, but sort of within the, within the framework of, of a responsible P&L. And, you know, sometimes that can be not so exciting for an investor if they're just really focused on growth, you know, kind of beyond everything else. But like I said earlier, we've been around for 20 years and, you know, I try to run the business so that it's here in 30 years and 40 years and it's generational and, uh, you know, we have lots and lots of customers to serve and lots of employees, you know, that want to develop their careers uh, here with us. So for me, it's about, you know, how do we run a business that is here for the long term? And uh, and so, you know, like I said, I think sometimes profitability and cash flows are kind of quaint <laughs> in the market, right. you know, where where sometimes there's a shiny ball that, that comes along. But that's OK. We know what we're what we're trying to do and, and we're trying to build for the long term. And so uh, I do think that there are periods where that also becomes, you know, kind of more fashionable, right? Like I remember uh, just about a year ago when COVID was really uh, becoming a sudden, you know, threat to a lot of things. And, and I'm sure you guys remember when the markets fell, you know, something like, you know, 25, 30% in the span of a few weeks. The fact that we had the strong balance sheet that we did and that we were profitable and generating cash. And it wasn't clear at that point, you know, was e-commerce going to, you know, be the beneficiary that it ended up being. But that gave us the luxury of not overreacting. I know a lot of companies that maybe didn't have that financial strength were already in the process of laying off staff and kind of battening down the hatches. And, and when you've got a really strong balance sheet and you operate in a financially disciplined way, you can actually see those moments as opportunities, which we did. So we actually leaned into it. We started investing more aggressively. Uh, we had a hypothesis about what it would mean for e-commerce and we had the financial ability to do that. So... 
in some ways it's the old Buffett thing when, you know, when others are fearful, be greedy and when others are greedy, be fearful. So, <laughs> um, so, you know, who knows? I mean, we, we, we may be you know, the last couple of days, interest rates have been ticking up and the market's been yeah. reacting negatively to that. But from my perspective, we just focus on what we do best, which is serving our customers and trying to run a, a responsible business. Every guest we've had on, it's, it's kind of a similar theme is customer obsession. And that's kind of, it has to be the first priority. And I think that gets lost, especially with a lot of startups in general, where they kind of focus a lot on the money aspect of things. Like, how do I raise my first round? How do I do this? And, you know, they don't really look at it from the customer side of things when they should. So I want to quickly transition real quick and talk about the triangle in general, right? Since I live here, you're here, Les went to school here. And we see kind of this mass exodus from a lot of these bigger tech hubs. And in a lot of cases, the triangle is, is being a recipient of that. So what are you excited about in the tech scene that's happening here in the triangle? You know, like I said, I've been here uh, more than 25 years and we've raised our family here. And I'm one of the people who benefited from the super high quality of life and, and low cost of living here in the Triangle. And, and I'm an outdoors kind of guy. So the combination of the incredible coastline, you know, with the Outer Banks and stuff and the and the mountains, you know, I travel a lot for business, or at least I did prior to last year. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's a lot of cool places, but I, I don't know that there's anywhere else I'd, I'd rather live than the, than the Triangle area. So what excites me is there's just so much talent here. There, there's, you know, so many capable people. We, you know, I think it's pretty well publicized and I think it's still true that we have the highest PhD per capita ratio just with all the schools around here. So there's just a lot of great talent. And it's loyal talent. I think that's the other cool thing that I think sometimes gets lost in the noise. I've, I've heard stats that, you know, in the Bay Area, your, your sort of average turnover for an engineer is like every 24 months or something like that. So that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, that's hard to build durability, I think, in a, in, in a business if, if, uh, if you've got that kind of turnover. So, uh, so I, I think the experience here is, is really good in that regard. I, I think some of the challenges are historically have been access to capital, although I think good ideas ultimately can, can find capital. Um, I think another challenging area that I think is beginning to change a little bit is the availability of more seasoned senior management. You know, So for example, when we were going public, there weren't that many local companies I could call on to say, hey, you know, what was your experience? Because it, it was the first time we were going through it. And so if we have some big companies here, right? And we have some startups and small companies here, but there's not a lot of companies kind of in that middle range where you can draw on um, you know, some of the management talent. So that's an area that I, I'd like to see us continue to work on just for the benefit of the next generation of potentially emerging companies or public companies that come out of the area. I appreciate that. And I'm obviously partial about the area, but I love the area too. And the five years I've been here, it's been growing like crazy and it's everything I could have imagined. So I agree with everything of that is, you know, getting more of these startups funded, getting them more going, having more of these kind of executives, middle tier companies to help support. Uh, I agree with that 100%. So let's, again, flip back to talking a little bit more about Channel Advisor. Uh, and during my research, at the beginning of the pandemic, you activated an initiative called the Business Continuity Program. Mm -hmm. So fast forward a year, right? So I think this was in March. We're almost at a year. Can you explain how this program was able to support what your business and your partner's kind of so far through the pandemic itself. So what's funny is we've had a business continuity program for many years, but it was primarily geared around how do we manage and handle like a really disruptive situation. But what we envisioned was more, you know, things like our platform being down or some kind of big internet outage or something 
you know, the, the, it was sort of easier to imagine, right? Like, oh, what if we screw something up and our and our system is down for, you know, three days? How do we manage that? How do we communicate with customers? How do we, you know, communicate with employees? All of this kind of stuff. So it was really envisioned around, you know, something that at least for me at the time was a little easier to imagine than a pandemic. But the framework kind of works for anything, right? Because it's, it's less about like the specific issue and it's more about how do you manage communications? How do you manage continuity, right? How do we make sure that, uh, for example, one of the early things that we did as part of our BCP, our business continuity program, was um, making sure that everybody, including our board of directors, had a very clear um, list of succession planning. So, for example, if, you know, early on, one of the things we realized, like, well, what if, what if a significant part of the executive team was kind of knocked out by COVID, you know, like who, who's in charge or who should the board of directors work with? So we actually had a, a pretty detailed list, a couple levels deep of everybody down to the director level in the company. So probably 50 or 60 people and, and who sort of the first and second backups were for them. So that's a good example of the thought that we put into it to make sure that, you know, no matter what happened, uh, there was continuity, uh, which is, you know, the key part, the key word in that, in that uh, acronym. So a year later, um, you know, the early stuff was, was pretty tactical. It was, hey, how do we make sure we transition? It was literally today, 351 days ago that we went work remote and we did it in about 24 hours. I happened to see a wow. tweet from the North Carolina Health and Human Services Department basically saying, if your company can work remotely, please do so, right? We're trying to, this is mm-hmm. back in March of last year. And so I called up my team and I said, let's, you know, let's figure out how we do this in the span of 24 hours, right? We already were in the cloud for the most part. And we had implemented Zoom uh, just by coincidence a couple of months prior. And everybody has laptops, right? So it was a pretty seamless transition from an infrastructure standpoint. But then we moved into the, okay, how do we manage communications with customers, with employees? How do we help our customers who are maybe reeling from some of the effects of COVID. And, you know, there's not a playbook for something like that. So we ended up having a daily standup with our business continuity team. So whatever issues had come up, you know, we had a mailing list, we had a chat group, we had all the things that you would expect to maximize the flow of communications. And, you know, I was probably emailing the company uh, two to three times a week, you know, just making sure that employees knew what we were doing, what we were seeing, what was changing. We, I think, got a, a lot of mileage out of that. And what I mean is that the number of employees who said, hey, you know, in a world where I don't know what's going on with, you know, my kid's school or, you know, I'm concerned about health or whatever. I think one of the consequences was Channel Advisor sort of emerged as a bit of an island of stability and all that, you know, just because we were so communicative. And of course, over the course of the year, it became clear that e-commerce was a beneficiary of, of the whole situation. But early on, it, it wasn't clear, right, what exactly was going to happen. So I would say, 90% of the business continuity was communication <laughs> right. um, and just making it clear what we were doing and why we were doing it and working with everybody from customers to employees, even shareholders. On March 23rd of last year, I issued a letter to shareholders when the market was really kind of negative at that point, just reminding our shareholders what, you know, what our financial profile looked like and even speculating back then that this might actually turn into a good thing for, uh, for Channel Advisor just in terms of e-commerce. And of course, that turned out to be true. That speaks to something I wanted to ask you about in terms of you as a technology leader. You just mentioned communication, and I think you're kind of hinting around this, but how do you weigh culture versus your strategy versus anything else in operations? What's most important in terms of channel advisor and what you're doing and success? Is it culture? Is it strategy? Is it operations? Is there a variable that is more important than the other? 
Yeah, I think it's hard to say that one is more because, you know, without one of those, it's hard to succeed. <laughs> right. So, right. You, you know, at some level, you have to have strategy. You have to be able to execute, um, you know, and and, you know, if you don't have these things, then it doesn't matter how good your ideas are. Right. They just they just never turn into anything. To me, culture is really the foundation, right? Culture. I was actually having this this uh, discussion with a uh, with another local entrepreneur the other day, trying to really define what we meant by culture. And in his view, it was culture is sort of the culmination of what do you tolerate, which I thought was sort of an interesting uh, point of view. For me, culture is the framework by which people make decisions every day in your absence. And so I guess what I mean by that is, you know, if you're, if you're not there to say, Hey, we should do X or we should do Y culture is that sort of lattice. It's that framework. It's that set of values. It's that way of thinking that you try to embody and transmit to a point where by and large people will think the way you want them to think about the business. Right. Uh, And and that's a little bit of a diffuse definition, but you know, we started a few years ago being a little bit more deliberate about things like values. Now, as an entrepreneur, it's been an interesting journey for me because there's the the old stories about you know Enron had a corporate vision and values, right? And they right. would put them up in a conference room, and of course, that didn't end you know super well. So, <laughs> I had this sort of like Dilbert view of that stuff, like where you you know if you have to print it out, like <laughs> maybe, maybe you don't have mean? it, right? <laughs> right. But I also came to appreciate, you know, we're, we're a global company, right? And so when you're a startup, all of your employees kind of get it through osmosis, right? Because they're in the foxhole with you and you sort of just are, are there together. Yeah. And you maybe don't have to be quite as deliberate about it. But, you know, when you get to the point where you have hundreds of employees that are around the world, like well, they're not going to get that osmosis. And so you have to be a little bit more deliberate about culture and what's important to you and what your values are, again, as part of shaping that lattice or that framework. And you know, I, I think that's what I've come to appreciate about some of the incredible companies out there like Amazon uh, that, who we've worked closely with, you know, for a long time is they sort of got that early on and I think made it sort of a core part of the foundation of the businesses. How do they think? And I think when you look at somebody like Jeff Bezos, I think that's probably one of his singular accomplishments is just very early on establishing what are the sort of core principles, the way they think about things and, and making it really a part of the fabric of the company, much to their success, obviously. I don't think you can have culture and nothing else. <laughs> like you, right. if you have a great culture, but no execution, well, that's, that's you know, you can't just sort of pick one. But I do think if you don't have a great culture then you might have sort of a flash in the pan success, but it's going to be hard to make it durable. And with the the social transformation, because here on NetFX, we talk about digital transformation, which in your definition, clearly you've gone through business transformation here and you're uh, a catalyst of digital transformation, certainly in retail and shopping and so on. So that part's obvious, but we're going through a social transformation now. I think anyone would argue that we're, if we're not, then, then it's remarkable what's happening around us. So from your point of view, is there anything around, and I know you're a certified board member, you have the credentials, you've gone through the training and so on. Is there anything around this sort of social transformation and accountability and responsibility at a corporate level that you think is essential for our audience to understand and that you think is a good practice you've been able to put together with Channel Advisor? Yeah, th- this is a really interesting area for me, and it's been a little bit of a personal journey as well. So we've always thought of ourselves as a really open, inclusive kind of meritocracy. Whether you look at our company policies, et cetera, we've always been, I think, progressive and open-minded as a company. And I think that's reflected in, you know, if you look across our employee base. So 
I always sort of saw ourselves as, um, you know, not quote unquote part of the problem. Like we were one of the good actors is kind of how I, I always thought of ourselves. Yeah. So last year in the wake of the death of George Floyd, we ended up hosting a bunch of listening sessions. So, you know, like, like a lot of corporate America, you know, I think everybody kind of took a pause and said, you know, am I, am I doing what I need to do? Right. So we did all these, uh, the, these listening sessions. I probably did seven or eight hours of it with different groups of people. And it was really, really eye-opening. Not so much in terms of did people have a problem with Channel Advisor, but it just hearing people's stories in their personal lives and like what they've had to put up with in this day and age. You know, we have we heard stories from people who couldn't rent an Airbnb because of their name. We've heard stories, you know, we have some interracial uh, couples at the company who talked about what the experience was when the white spouse was driving versus when the person of color was driving and sort of the, you know, what their experiences were there. Um, all the way to, you know, some more, you know, sad experiences to just to just hear about. And so for me, it was like a really, really eye-opening experience. And I think the epiphany for me was realizing like, it's not enough to be good as a company. Like we actually have to do more because if we're good and we just think that that's enough, then continued progress from here is going to take another hundred years or another 200 years. And so for, for me, the epiphany was we, we're not actually doing enough. We need, to, we need to do more to be sort of a force for progress, right? And I, and I also didn't want to do, you know, it was a really popular thing for everybody to sort of like throw up a social media post and right. say, hey, you know, we're, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and I, that's, I'm, I'm a little less inclined to, to do that. Instead, we sat down, you know, we did all these listening sessions and, and we decided we wanted to make some really long-term sustained changes so, for example, you know, we you, you hear the typical refrain in tech that, you know, well, there's not enough pipeline, for example, of diverse candidates, and that's why right. we don't have executives, you know, that are that are diverse. And one of our employees said, well, you know, like, do we do enough to provide access? Like, we recruit, for example, for engineering at NC State, but do we do that at NCA and T, for example? Yeah. Are we are we recruiting at, at historically black colleges? And I realized, like, wow, there's some easy things we can do. And it's not a zero sum game. It's not like we're going to do something that impacts somebody else, but why don't we widen the aperture a little bit? Why don't right. we recruit right. at a broader array of schools? Why don't we create more access? And so we developed a pretty long list of action items, some of which are, you know, immediate, like we, we created, uh, uh, we made election day in the U S a holiday, right. To improve access to the polls. Wow. We were launching what we call ERGs, employee resource groups, uh, in April of this year for different groups. And then there's some longer term things like, um, obviously the anti-bias training, blind resumes, you know, so we developed this, this pretty extensive action plan. We've got over 50 people that volunteered to be part of the task force and each of them are attacking different areas of, of this. But I think it's probably the single most impactful thing we can do as a business over the next decade is to just improve. Um, and advocacy is another one, right? So we we historically have not been political as a company, and I don't intend for us to become political. But there are certain topics where we can actually contribute to the the discourse, right? Like yeah. things that we think impact our employees. So we've rededicated ourselves to it. And for me personally, it's it's really been uh, a motivating thing. And, and again, I go back to the very simple act of just hosting those listening sessions and just hearing what our employees experience, you know, has been in the year 2020 and, you know, ways that we could contribute to a better environment. Again, not as a company, because I think everybody said, hey, Channel Vise has been great. But that's not enough. That was my big realization was like, there's a lot more that we can do. And it's more, there's more that we should do. Very powerful. Yeah, I agree. And I think that 
I'll be the first one. I think both Les and I will agree. You know, a huge round of applause to you on on doing that. And I think it's very important that you kind of stood up and had these listening sessions. And you know, kudos to you on that because I think it's it's super important. And I think with that and being a leader and being a public company, especially in this area, will really help allow other people to follow that example. So thank you for doing that. Yeah, no. And and I think part of it for me was realizing like we are a significant employer and we are a public company. And so we have a little bit of a voice and, and, and we ought to use that for good. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's what we hope to achieve. Matter of fact, that's great. Yeah. Matter of fact, <laughs> you're at 100%. So personal transformation, COVID-19 has changed many people personally as a business leader, as a father, as a husband. So when you look at yourself, you know, how have you personally transformed in any or all three of those areas? I'd love to tell you that I like got serious about my exercise program and lost 20 pounds, uh, but that would be false. Um, you know, it's kind of related to the topic we were just talking about. So I came up through Channel Advisor as the chief operating officer and I'm, I'm an operator. I'm a numbers guy. I'm, I'm, you know, that software engineer at heart. And so that's, that's kind of how I'm wired. Uh, you know, everything is like an engineering uh, challenge. And the last year, I think, really is really the year I came into my own as a CEO, which maybe sounds a little bit dramatic, but I hadn't been a CEO before. And I've been in this role for going on six years now. But last year was the year where like, all of a sudden, it wasn't the hard skills that mattered in a large way. It was the soft skills. So we talked about communication. We talked about the listening sessions. You know, we talked about the sensitivity around, you know, the racial tensions in the U.S. And even just down to some of the things that employees were going through, right? Like, you know, we had a number of employees that were touched by COVID, whether they personally got sick or, or lost loved ones. And you guys all remember the stories and it's still the case in a lot of places where, you know, somebody, a loved one might've been sick and you couldn't physically go see them, you know, cause they were in a different state and maybe they were in a hospital under, under lockdown. So I had a lot of interactions with employees that were going through some really tough personal situations. And so all of those things were, you know, my, my sort of operator engineer mentality wasn't applicable. <laughs> it was about communication and empathy and, and just talking to people and, you know, being that source of stability and that island of stability, both as a company and as a, as a leader. And so those were muscles that I really built up over the course of the last year, you know, that I think I really didn't have to focus on previously or didn't focus on previously. So for me, it was kind of a transformative year. It's really the year where I felt like I truly became CEO after all these years because I became, I think, sort of a leader on a personal level for a lot of, a lot of our employees. And I've heard, it's interesting, we did, uh, we, did, we do this, this periodic survey of employee engagement. And the one that we did at the end of last year was by far our highest scoring survey that we've ever done, which, you know, after such a tough year, you know, and everybody working remote, you'd think that the opposite would be true. But I think, ironically, the experience of the last year, everybody felt closer. And I think it was just our communication and focus on employee well-being that, that I think ultimately drove that. So I, I didn't, you know, obviously set out the year with the, you know, I didn't have like a, a to-do list of like becoming more communicative and working <laughs> on my EQ and my softer side or anything like that. Sometimes, you know, you sort of rise to meet the, the you know, challenge, the yeah. challenge. Yeah. and, uh, you know, and I don't even know if in the middle of it, 
I sort of realized what was going on, but, but looking back, I think that was sort of my personal transformation. And, uh, look, I couldn't have done it without the team that we have, the employees we have, uh, our executive team as a unit, I think really stepped up to the situation. And I'm so appreciative for that, but I just, I learned new things really probably learned more over the last year than I have in the last, you know, five years uh, in terms of personal development. Les and I really, one of our biggest goals is to, you know, humanize that executive. And I think you do a wonderful job of kind of letting your guard down, right? Letting the letting that wall down, really showing showing that personal side. And I think that's huge because, as Les said, we have a huge array of IT executives, startup founders that listen to this, and I think that that's important, right? To really humanize yourself, and I think this will go a long way. So I really do appreciate you doing that and, and kind of letting your guard down and, and sharing that story with us. That was that was great. Thank you for doing that. I'll tell you a funny story on that. Um, you know, I mentioned early on I was communicating very frequently with employees as things were changing so rapidly and. Early on, one of the habits I got into was just in, in each of my emails, like dropping a picture of like what was life in the Spitz household, like whether it was, you know, <laughs> We're playing all things kids on there. The, in the garage with the kids. You know, we had college kids coming home, yeah. you know, because schools were closing and pictures of us, you know, whether it was playing ping pong or having a birthday in quarantine or just planting a vegetable garden. And I got so much feedback from employees. It was like, that was actually their favorite part. It wasn't like, Hey, here's the business update. It's like, Hey, here's a, here's a picture <laughs> of our CEO actually like doing normal things. And you know, it's easy when you, when you're in the role to just sort of assume people know that about you. But right. you know, I think sometimes, you know, you, you become a little bit mysterious if you're, if you're a CEO. And so it demysticized, especially those listening sessions too. I, I continue to get feedback from folks who are like, you know, just, just knowing that you're willing to listen was a big step. So yeah, that's one of the things I learned, you know, it's like, it's okay to, it's okay to just, you know, quote unquote, be vulnerable or open up or just, you know, share the fact that, yeah, you're, you're a human like everybody else. I think people appreciate that about their leader. Well, all right. So David, I have to ask how, how big a house is this? You got six kids. I mean, come on. <laughs> they're all back at home man you're probably like well i don't know maybe they should go back to college <laughs> a funny story because we built we bought a little farmhouse on a few acres uh in 2015 and, and it took us like forever it took us two years to build the house and of course by the time we finished it like our kids had been going off to college and so i looked at yeah. my wife like kind of missed time this but it turned out to be pretty good so now we the, the best part about the house is we live in north raleigh and and it was it's a little five acre kind of former horse farm. Oh, God. So it's actually got like, if you're going to be stuck somewhere during quarantine, it turned out to be, you know, pretty, Perfect. a pretty good place to, uh, to be. One quick question here. And this is more of a, a curious question from my side is especially because Scott constantly talks about this stuff on Twitter and then their podcast, but kind of this e-commerce battle between Shopify and Amazon, huge admirer of both companies. And where do you see this playing out in the next 10 years? Well, that's a, that's a great question. One, one of the things I love about tech, and you know, I've been in it my whole career, is that every decade has its sort of like, you know, epic battle royale between you know, the incumbent and the up-and-comer. I mean, back when I was early in my career, it was sort of Microsoft taking on the IBM establishment, and then it was you know, Google coming up, and then Amazon, and you know, certainly in e-commerce, I would say Shopify is sort of the, you know, the, the new one. So it, it's, it's a hard question to answer. I think, you know, Amazon is a once in a lifetime type of company in terms of its culture and, you know, what they've been able to do. And, and, you know, I think Bezos deserves credit for probably for sure being once in a generation, if not once in a century type of CEO. Um, 
Now, of course, he's just stepped into exec chairman, and so we'll see what you know potentially changes there. But Toby Luque at, at Shopify, you know, I see similar kind of glimpses of of that same kind of long term strategic thinking. I think one thing about Amazon that probably not enough people appreciate is I think probably their single biggest competitive barrier is fulfillment and logistics. Yeah, you know, like nobody has put the amount of capital and effort and focus into you know how to get a product to you quickly and reliably as Amazon has right. and. You know, I think we all take it for granted now that products arrive typically in a day or two. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, it was like a week to 10 days, right? And now, you know, in a lot of places, you can buy something and have it delivered, you know, within a couple of hours. And that's just kind of a magical thing. And that's really hard to replicate, you know, uh, and, and, and as, as good as Shopify is, if they don't have long term a, a great answer for that, then I think that's probably a competitive uh, weakness compared to Amazon. So I guess, you know... I guess it'll come down to, you know, can Amazon sort of address the the threat that Shopify poses or can Shopify kind of close in some of those gaps? Uh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't count Amazon, especially this year. Amazon in the last 12 months has built out, you know, an incredible amount of additional fulfillment logistics capacity. And I think that is going to pay dividends for many, many years to come. Um, but Shopify, you know, is, is, uh, is quote unquote arming the rebels, right? So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens. It's going to, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And, and here's the cool thing, right? Whoever ends up being kind of like the winner in the next decade, the really interesting thing to me is like, okay, who's the entrepreneur that's getting started now. That's going to be that, you know, that, that one challenging the incumbent starting in the year 2030. Mm-hmm. So that's the creative destruction in our industry is is both what makes it hard and challenging, but also makes it so much fun and exciting to participate in. Well, listen, we are at the uh, rapid fire section of our podcast. And so David, we're going to hit you with about five, six questions. First thing that comes to mind, please answer your favorite song. American Pie, Don McLean. Can you sing it? (laughs) No, I'm a terrible singer. (laughs) Just wait. Come on. We always we always try. It we doesn't always, always work. Try, yeah. We had one. Dr. Yes. LaBeouf was the only one that kind of yeah, he went for it. <laughs> uh, favorite movie? You know, I really like Stand by Me, which is kind of an odd choice, but it it so reflected my childhood. Uh, my buddies and I, growing up, we used to literally follow the railroad tracks where I lived, and thankfully we never found a dead body. But uh, mm-hmm. but it it really brought back kind of that age and the innocence and just friendships and and you know. So for me, it just it always brings me back to my childhood. Celebrity crush. Oh, that's a hard one. You know, and, and maybe it changes with time, but lately I have been really into Christopher Walken, you know, the actor, like he's just so unique. And we, I just watched a movie, uh, I think it was called Wild Mountain Time, Time Like the Spice, where he was, he was the actor. Um, and I don't know, he's just so, there's just something so unique about his style and it's, and it, he's so authentic in it. I just, I just okay, love it. Can so, you do a walk-in impersonation like, I'm not afraid of Frankenstein, you know, whatever, anything. I'm, I'm as bad an impersonator as I am a, as I am a singer. So, so, okay. Okay. So we'll skip the walk-in impersonation. The one business book that you would recommend to our followers. I'm probably a little old school in this. There's a, there's a book called the essays of Warren Buffett um, that I think probably did more to shape my view on how a business should be constructed and run than, than probably anything else. It's a little bit old. It's a, consolidation of, you know, his annual letters and some of his other writings. Um, but to me, it's timeless. Can't go wrong with that. That is fantastic. So we have only one last question and this is for our audience to think about what is the one thing you would recommend for them to consider, think about for their own, either personal transformation or 
something to think about in their future and the way that you kind of project and, and you plan and you appreciate that kind of planning. What is the one thing they should think about in the next 12 months? If I were to only give out one piece of advice, it would be to step outside your comfort zone. Like, don't be afraid to fail. I think that's probably, I think fear of failure is probably the single biggest thing that holds people back. And they, they overestimate the downside of failure versus thinking about the upside of actually succeeding. Um, when I became CEO, like I said, it was my first time as CEO and, and I was nervous about it, right? I mean, Scott Wingo in particular is a hard act to follow. Um, and, you know, I, I, I could imagine all sorts of ways I wouldn't be successful, right? But I, I, I also said to myself, um, you don't get many opportunities like this in life. And so how are you going to feel? You know, Bezos himself calls it the, the regret minimization framework, which is a totally nerdy way to think about it. But, wow. you know, at the end of, uh, at the end of your life, are you going to look back and, you know, what are you going to regret and try not to do those things, right? Or try not to avoid those things. And so I would say to somebody that's maybe thinking about, you know, doing something outside their comfort zone, whether it's becoming an entrepreneur or just trying something they haven't done before to not overthink the negative possibilities and just just go for it well david david spitz ceo of channel advisor thank you very much for being on netfx podcast where we talk about digital social and personal transformation you've been a wonderful guest appreciate all of your insights and we invite you back anytime david thank you for being on our podcast thank you so much david 